I'm Sean McCormick, and this is Optimal Performance. That's what's cool about hypnosis. You can just shift gears and say, what would it be like if I were different? If I let go of these set of presumptions about who I am, hypnosis will help you focus on eating with respect for your body, on paying attention to your hunger and satiety cues, and honoring them. And the answer is clearly yes. What we do as functioning humans is make connections with one another, with ideas, with mind and body, um, pruning and reshaping those connections. Reverie is uh, just a digital interactive hypnosis app. Uh, You download it from uh, the App Store if you have an iOS phone or Google Play if you have an Android. And it offers you a series of um, problems you can address using hypnosis. You can test your hypnotizability in about six minutes. I love episodes just like this one with Dr. David Spiegel, which give you practical solutions so that you can live optimal. You know, at the heart of what I'm doing here is providing you with tools, ideas, uh, practices that you can do at home for free or cheap that will make you a better person. And hypnosis is an incredible doorway. Hypnosis can affect so many different things from aging to cancer, sleep, OCD, psychosis, diet, smoking cessation, addiction, trauma, just incredible amounts of application for hypnosis. And uh, if you haven't checked out the Reverie app, which is a hypnosis app that you can find out in six minutes if you're actually hypnotizable or to what level you're hypnotizable, This is such a cool episode, and you should check it out. Uh, Dr. Spiegel is at Stanford. He's been on the Huberman podcast, and I was so excited to get him to pick his brain. This one is an instant classic. I know you're going to love every second of this episode. As always, you can find me at McCormick on Instagram. I'm now on TikTok. You can find me there. And if you have not signed up for What's Up Wednesday, it's a newsletter with five points. It's about four minutes, and I send it out every single midday Wednesday. Just go to seanmccormick.com and sign up there or just DM me on Instagram your email and I will add it personally. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you really enjoy this episode just half as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. David Spiegel. And I'm here with Dr. David Spiegel. He's a professor and associate chair of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford School of Medicine and also the co-founder and chief scientific officer at Reverie Health. Dr. Spiegel, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thank you, Sean. I'm delighted to be here with you. You know, I shared this before before we turn on the recording button, which is uh, we're sort of a dumber, I'm sort of a dumber uh, Huberman, you know, like into the same stuff, cold exposure, you know, personal development, biohacking, just, you know, just not obviously not from Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) Your, your interview with Dr. Huberman was, was so dense and so full of insight. It really, really blew my mind. And and what I want to do is is ask some of those same questions, but I'll start with the basic question you've been asked a thousand times is what is hypnosis actually? Sure, actually. Um, Like, what is love, actually, right? Um, (laughs) uh, Hypnosis is just a state of highly focused attention. It's something like, have you ever gotten so caught up in a good movie that you kind of forget you're watching the movie and you enter the imagined world? Uh, It's been called believed in imagination. So hypnosis is like looking through a telephoto lens in a camera. What you see, you see with great detail, but you're less aware of the periphery. So it gives you this sense of absorption, of engagement in what it is that you're studying. And you kind of are less aware of the 
me sitting here observing it and more me in it, experiencing it. It be, I become it, it becomes me, believed in imagination. And so that's a powerful thing because you can absorb and learn and enjoy absorbing and learning in a more intense way in hypnosis than you do in ordinary experience where you might be sitting there and thinking, you know, I really ought to get back online and, and answer a bunch of emails or do something else. And I have a lunch coming up and the, it, it allows you to really intensely focus. Um, it goes, uh, what helps to make that possible is a second component dissociation, putting outside of conscious awareness, things would ordinarily be in consciousness. So right now, Sean, I can see your shoulders. I presume you're sitting in a chair and I presume you have sensations in your body, your legs, your bottom, your back touching the chair. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. But I also hope that you are not even aware of those sensations until I brought into your attention that's an everyday form of dissociation where you just put outside of awareness things that could be in awareness and that contributes to your ability to focus on what you want to focus on you're not distracted by all kinds of input and that's what our brains do it's remarkable how they process all this information but help you select what part of it you need to engage with at that particular moment the third component so we've got dissoci we've got absorption dissociation the third is what scares people the most about hypnosis, and that's suggestibility. You know, I can make you cluck like a chicken or make the football coach dance like a ballerina in front of people and things like that. That I don't like using anything to make people feel foolish or silly or do something irrelevant. But the notion of suggestibility, because, you know, look, we're all susceptible of social influence. We're, we're, we're social creatures. We use language to learn and engage in the world and all that. And that means sometimes we can be misled by people. God knows, you know, 70% of Republicans think Trump won the election. You know, there are all kinds of things that people get dragged down the path of. So being capable of responding to social input is just an ordinary part of human existence. What what is suggest what is called suggestibility is really cognitive flexibility. It's the capacity to say, "I'm going to try out looking at this problem from a totally different way." So, and and in contrast to traditional psychotherapy, and I do it sometimes, uh, where you try to get people to understand what's wrong with them and then find a method of changing, either from understanding better how you were raised as a kid or from taking steps in cognitive behavioral therapy. You do it from the bottom up. You just say, let me just see what it would feel like if I were different. Hmm. Let me just see when I'm stressed out, if I can imagine focusing on what's stressing me, but keeping my body floating as if it were in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. Can I disconnect my physiological reaction to stress from the thing that is stressing me and maybe handle the stressor better? Or if I want to stop smoking, what would it be like if instead of worrying about the urge to smoke and, oh, God, I've been doing it for all these years and all that, I thought for my body, smoking's a poison. Think of your body as if it were your baby. Would you ever put tar and nicotine into the lungs of your baby? Hell no. Well, guess what? Your body is as dependent on you as your baby is. Mm. So if you just try out a different point of view and focus on that intently, you can change behavior. And we're getting one out of five people with a single session of using reverie to stop smoking, to stop smoking. And the rest of them who keep smoking cut their tobacco use by about 50%.
So it's you don't have to go through this long, painful process. That's what's cool about hypnosis. You can just shift gears and say, what would it be like if I were different? If I let go of these set of presumptions about who I am and just tried being different. And so it's absorption, dissociation, and and cognitive flexibility. And that's a fertile ground for change, mm. for experiencing the way you interact with your body differently and for letting go of assumptions that have imprisoned you. I can't stop because I'm addicted or something. And just say, let me see what it'd be like if I did it. Hmm. And a lot of people do it. So is once you are in a hypnotic state or a highly suggestible state, whether it's through the app or with a person and you entertain this, this alternative perspective about yourself or about your behavior, then does mm -hmm. that run within the subconscious so that it is then sort of integrated into the way that we operate all the time? Because I, I, I imagine that once that's been effective, you're not really thinking about not smoking. You just have entertained this idea that you would prefer not to. And then that just sort of underlays your is it I mean is it working on the subconscious well it's an interesting point the the older uh, there was a hypnotist named Milton Erickson who sort of kept the tradition alive in medicine in the about a hundred years ago um and his idea was that the the conscious mind gets in your way and the the subconscious knows what to do and if you just silence your conscious mind your unconscious will solve its problems now he, he was an admirable guy who kept the, he carried the torch for a long time. But the thing is, my own feeling is if my subconscious knew what to do, it would be doing it, you know? And so it's not a matter of, you know, the subconscious is great and the conscious is a problem. It's more a matter of how do you interact with your mind and all the things that it processes in a way that you can take advantage of the best possibilities and use them. So there is this, idea. it is true that, once you've had this experience of changing your assumptions and your perspective on it, that may well stick because you discovered, Hey, you know, this works. I feel better. You know, I wake up in the morning and my breath doesn't smell bad and I can breathe more freely, or I've had a good night's sleep that I haven't had in, in years. We, we had one reverie user who wrote this really angry email about how she was having technical difficulties, keeping the app open and all that. And she said, and the reason this makes me so mad is it's the first time I've been able to sleep in 15 years, you know, mm -hmm. so that's great. So people, when they have that experience, they say, oh, I want more of this. So it's not that there's some magic dividing line between conscious and unconscious. Most of the things that go on in our brain, we are not conscious of. If we were conscious of all the things you and I are doing right now, we would just grind to a halt. You know, there's a physical position, there's hunger, there's breath, there's digestion, all kinds of things the brain is doing. And so it is the case that when you kind of stumble upon a new model, uh, there's enough reinforcement for it that you can keep doing it. But it's not that there's some magic dividing line between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. It is the case that in hypnosis, you can sometimes access components of your mental activity that you weren't haven't thought about for a long time you know and when i work with people with trauma that you know they'll often they'll try not to be thinking about things and you can bring them to the surface and help them reconceptualize them and feel differently about the kind of problem they were dealing with and that can be very powerful but it can also be everyday kinds of things where i just i've learned you know, to just not care whether somebody's smoking around me, I wouldn't think of doing that to my body. And that's not the way I felt 
you know, a week ago. So it there isn't people tend to think that there's some superpower in the unconscious and and you know if you just kind of let let it happen in your unconscious it'll change the way you are it's more a matter of reshuffling your experiences and see what comes to the top if you can put aside your usual presumptions and try out something different and then you can perpetuate that if you want yeah that that's really well said the, the what what comes to mind is let's take trauma for example and what i'm i have a little cognitive sort of hiccup happening in which you know in in, in psychotherapy and working with a therapist uh oftentimes you're you're sort of instructed or guided to go to that place of trauma or to like nourish that that inner child um to actually go there and to actually process and understand and and shift your perspective around that trauma whereas the kind of the what I'm thinking and what I'm hearing from you is that hypnosis doesn't necessarily process that trauma. Like you didn't do anything wrong, Sean. You're you're not responsible for X. You were a kid. Like you know that maybe that's processing. Whereas hypnosis is, hey, let's just like let it go. Is it? Am I am I hearing that correctly? Uh, no, actually, uh, you you pose the question well, but I'll give you an example uh, like that, Sean. That that is shows how with hypnosis, the thing is, the, the presumption is with sort of standard psychotherapy, you've got to do it step by step and take a lot of time. And and sometimes I've done that with patients. But I had a woman come to me uh, about a year ago, uh, who grew up in a country that is famous for mistreating women. Um, she said she left uh, as a teenage girl, she said, I realized my body wasn't my own men could say anything they wanted to about me, it was humiliating. Um, and she initially came because she had pain and I was, she was very effectively using hypnosis to control her pain. And, but she was still, she'd been depressed most of her life. She, she got to the U S she became a healthcare professional, but she retired early. She was so depressed. And, um, she said to me when I was 12 years old, uh, I was raped by my landlord and my parents didn't do anything about it, even though they knew about it because they were afraid we'd be thrown out of the apartment. So I had her in hypnosis go back and say, I want you to be mother to your own 12-year-old self. And I want you to picture yourself just after you'd been raped. And this was this was a violent, awful rape. And uh, I said, and, I, and she starts to cry. And so she's reliving it, you know, as if it were happening. But the good thing about hypnosis is you can dip into it and experience it, and then you can turn it off again. You have more control over it. It's not like you're now swimming in it forever. And I said, I want you to look at yourself as that 12-year-old and answer this question for me. Is this her fault? And she starts crying harder and she starts, she's saying, I'm stroking her hair. I'm stroking her hair. And she comes out of the hypnosis and she says, I feel different. I feel lighter somehow. Hmm. And a week later, she called me up and she said, my psychiatrist wants to know what you did to me because I'm not depressed anymore. And he'd been treating her with meds for years, you know. Mm. She said, my friends don't recognize me, you know. And and six months later, I just got a, a text from her saying, I thank God for the doctor who referred me to you. Mm. And you've changed my life. Mm. So there are times when you can use hypnosis not to push it away or avoid it, but to deal with it in a way that gives you a different perspective. And most sexual assault victims... Um, 
blame themselves for events they didn't control. They'd rather feel guilty than helpless. Mm. And so you can use hypnosis to deal with those things and to very starkly confront the situation, but see it from a different point of view. And that's what I mean about letting go of your ordinary presumptions. You can um, be cognitively flexible and see the same event, including dealing with the affect that comes with it, but from a totally different perspective and just see it as something that was done to you. And she said that she allowed herself to have a sense of anger at this bastard that she'd never allowed herself to feel before that she kept saying, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. Um, And to see it for what it was. So uh, hypnosis is not about covering it up or forgetting it at all. I've had people ask me, you know, can you hypnotize me to make me forget some horrible thing? And I say, you know, A, I can't, and B, even if I could, I wouldn't, because that's not the best way for you to deal with it. Hmm. And if you want to really deal with it in a way that allows you to move beyond it, um, then this is one way to do it. Hmm. So it's the tool. It's it's the it's it's the tool, the technique to go in and do some of that reframing or some of that re-experiencing to to help heal and grow. I love that. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Um, today's episode is brought to you by BioPro Plus. You've probably heard me talk about it because I've been taking it for a couple of years and I absolutely love it. It is by far the most impactful supplement I've ever taken, and I've experimented with hundreds and hundreds of different supplements. BioPro Plus is the faster, easier, and safer non-synthetic alternative to painful, expensive, and invasive anti-aging hormone treatments. It's a unique combination of ingredients taken daily in the morning under the tongue to help literally everything. I'm talking about better sleep, faster metabolism, better muscle growth, increased libido, better mood, I can't tell you how effective this product is. And here's the thing. For guys over 35, our hormones and our ability to create growth hormone plummet. They start to decline very rapidly, especially if you're stressed out or you have a busy life. And what I have suggested to many of my clients and you, dear listener, is to wait. Wait before you go on TRT. Wait before you go do a thousand injectable peptides and try this product first. It is absolutely phenomenal. All you have to do is go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off or click on the show notes and take me up on this offer. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from clients that wish that they had found this years ago. Bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. I did not expect to go here, but I, I suddenly find myself wondering about free will. And this is not a philosophy podcast, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, does does free will come into play here? Well, it's interesting. I, my friend and colleague Robert Sapolsky has just published a book called Determined, you know, about um, how none of us has any free will. And so I guess he didn't have any free will about writing the book. But uh, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I think I think it's uh, it uh, it's it's an interesting question. I was a philosophy major in college and I like thinking about those things. Um I think what is fundamental, I mean, look at how the brain is wired and look at how we live. The brain is wired with millions of interconnections among neurons. It's about making connections. And, you you know, we, we now know that there's long-term potentiation where the more neurons fire, the more they set up circuits that tend to keep firing together, wiring together, uh, firing together is wiring together. 
Um, and there's long-term depression where you begin to disconnect. And a lot of what our brains do uh, at night when we sleep is get rid of the old connections we don't need. Because if we kept adding connections, our brains would explode out of our skulls. So that's one reason I think we have to sleep is to allow our brains to, to rewire. So making connections is fundamental to neuroprocessing. And I think what we do uh, as functioning humans is make connections with one another, with ideas, with mind and body, um, and and pruning and reshaping those connections. Now, um, you could argue that the whole thing is deterministic and just what I'm exposed to. You know, you and I are just sort of two robots, you know, bouncing off each other, and I'm changing your wiring, you're changing mine to some extent. But I don't think so. I, I you know, I think as as important in understanding the brain and how we work as science is and genetics is, um, I think uh, there's a lot of, there's some aspect to it that is just a miracle, you know, that you yeah. and I are sitting here smiling at each other and talking. And I can, I, I would be hubris of me to say, I can fully explain that in deterministic ways. Right. I don't think so. You know, I think it's just a miracle. And when I watch people facing death, you know, they say, you know, on the one hand, you know, when they finally get the courage, they one one of my group therapy patients said it's like looking into the Grand Canyon when you're afraid of heights. If you fell down, it would be a disaster, but you feel better about yourself because you're able to look. I can't say I feel serene. I can look at it. So the perspective they have is the thing they have most feared, you know, looking into the abyss and seeing facing the end of your existence um, also reminds you what a bloody miracle existence is. And the fact that you've been able to experience it all. And it's what people after psilocybin trips who are dying of cancer say, you know, that I, I mean, I would I would personally think that the potential of having a bad trip while I was dying would discourage me from taking a psychedelic. But you know what? These people come out of it and they're different. And they just say, I could see how miraculous it was that I have existence mm. for however long I have it. And I don't want to lose it, but I'm just blessed that I have it, you know. And and so I can't believe that there isn't something that we just don't fully understand. And, you know, another example of scientific hubris was the idea that, you know, that uh, genetics is all totally determined, you know, that and that uh, Lysenko, this Russian biologist 100 years ago, was crazy when he said that we inherit acquired characteristics. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I had a biology professor who said, uh, well, um, if we inherit inquired characteristics, why is it that we still have to perform circumcisions? You know, <laughs> that hasn't gone away. <laughs> um, but we now know uh, that the tendency for genes to be expressed, epigenetics, is very much determined by the environment. And and so even, you know, what seemed like the most clearly deterministic kind of biology, which is genetics, isn't quite as deterministic as we thought it was. And and so I just think, you know, science explains a lot, but it, it hasn't yet explained everything. And I just I just don't I don't believe that uh, you and I are just doing what we were programmed to do. Yeah. Yeah. If we don't have the if we don't have the tools to measure outcomes then we're left in wonder right we're we're left in um in reverie in thought in in possibility and and i i i tend to disagree 
you know, fervently against this, the against determinism. Um, and, and, and maybe it's all the psychedelics that I take and have taken, and maybe it's, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's my spiritual practice, but yeah, I just, I, the way that I was thinking about it was if we can, if we can become hypnotized and we can develop new parts of ourselves for good or, you know, for, 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 for uh, personal development, then, then it's an operating system that's happening inside of our brain that we are maybe either not conscious of at all or, or, or happening um, without our sort of awareness. And, and so, but I, no, I agree. I agree with, with, with that. Um, yeah. um, there's so much here, you know, my father, who I mentioned before we turned the, the recording button on is a behaviorist. And I shared with mm-hmm. you that I had, we had mice named Burris and Skinner. And, um, he, <laughs> he, he found some, some success with self-hypnosis in which he was making really? recordings with his own voice. Huh. Uh, and, and so I'm curious about the distinction between being hypnotized and developing your own practice with your own voice. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is there a distinction or difference or value? I actually think, Sean, that um, all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. That what people allow me to do when I have the privilege of working with them is to help them learn to better structure their own hypnotic experience. And that what goes on in hypnosis is just a more intense focus. I mean, there are studies that show of the trait absorption. There are people who more easily get into sunsets and movies and lose themselves and in plays and in, in drama um, than others. And they tend to be more hypnotizable than others. So for some people, that's just their style of being much of the time, maybe not all of the time, but much of it. And I think what hypnosis allows you to do is to sort of pretend to wipe the slate clean and, and approach a problem from a, a novel point of view and see what it feels like. Um, so, and it's the intensity of focus, the dissociation and the openness to being something or someone different than you usually think you are, the cognitive flexibility that makes that possible. And so it's interesting. He did it in his own voice. And, and I, I like that model because it's so different from the old idea that the powerful hypnotist, you know, coerces you into doing something you wouldn't otherwise do. Because, you know, he was his own hypnotist in that sense. That was the model of all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis. And apparently, did he respond to it? Did he did he find that it helped him? He did. So he, yeah, he did. How did he, how did he respond? What did he do? That uh, he, It was around um, uh, it, it, his relationship to food. It was appetite. And, uh, um, and I found, you know, he found this, this vein of, you know, um, the sort of present first person present tense positive which is you know i i eat healthy nutritious foods i you know i feel satiated quicker that sort of a thing and uh and it and it, and it really was effective for him that's great and the one of the things we say is focus on what you're for you know people who use hypnosis right. I'd love to say, you know, the worst thing you can say to someone is don't think about purple elephants. You know, I mean, what do you do? So instead, he did what we uh, a variant of what we do with people. We ha- I have a guy named Adam who who I know pretty well, who used reverie. He said that um, he uh, 
was looking at some photos of a party and he thought, hey, there's this guy who was dressed the same way I was. Only he, he was a guy who had like a big pot belly, big. And his son said, dad, that isn't somebody else. That's you. And he had just was so disconnected mm. from how much weight he put on and what he looked like. And he started using Reverie. And what we do is tell people to, to not say, don't eat. That's the worst thing you can say. Say, for my body, too much food is a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. So it's that same, you know, protective parental role for your own body. Would you stuff food into the mouth of your cat or your dog or your baby that it didn't want to eat? No. So eat with respect for your body. Eat when you're hungry. And the minute your body tells you it's full, stop. I don't care if you've got a plate full of food, you put it in the fridge and eat it some other time. Focus on what you're for, respecting and protecting your body. He also, he said he realized he could eat better if he walked more. He said, I used to be the kind of person who, you know, spend five minutes driving to get a closer space in the parking lot to the store. He said, now I walk to the store. He walks between Palo Alto and Mountain View where his work is and walks back. That's a long walk. We met him for dinner once and he had walked from one end of Palo Alto to the other when, you know, he could have driven there in five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and he has lost 60 pounds. He's slim as a rail and he just learned to sort of reset his brain to be a different kind of person in relation to food. And so just like what your dad did. And mm -hmm. so the nice thing is it doesn't have to be all that painful if the approach involves your intense focus concentration and a strategy that makes sense where you can affiliate with that. The cool thing about it is you can also feel good from the moment you start doing it. I'm going to be a better parent to my own body. That feels good. And, and rather than feeling I'm depriving myself of that extra slice of pie or something like that, you're focusing on what you're for. So you get, you know, behavioral psychologists know that the best way to change behavior is intermittent positive reinforcement. You don't say, don't do this. You say, good for you. You did it. You know, we, we, the, the nurses at the hospital here were trying to get doctors to, to uh, gel their hands before they went into every patient room. And the, the committee was proposing that a nurse criticize the doctor if he goes in without it. And I said, bad idea. I say, you wait until you see a doctor doing it and you walk over and say, thank you, doctor. I really appreciate you doing that. That's how you're going to change behavior. And so this is the same thing. You find something that you can affiliate with and feel good about from the moment you make the commitment to do it. Yeah, beautiful. Well said. I I can't help but see the connect the connections, some of the themes around, you know, some of the positive thought movement. Um, you know, I think about Dr. Joe Dispenza, um, one of my favorite episodes I've ever recorded. This one's getting up there, but one of my favorites is uh <laughs> is with Bruce Lipton. And, mm -hmm. uh, and he, he spoke really clearly about, uh, about mantra and affirmation as a way to sort of positively reinforce, just like you were saying, uh, certain behaviors or certain points of view, certain ways of being and thought process about, about the self on a path toward personal development. And I'm curious if you see the connection there and I'll, and I'll take it one step further. It almost feels a little bit like the secret. You know, it feels almost a little bit like, you know, inner alchemy, you know, manifestation practices through this orientation around positive outcomes. Um, any thoughts, any thoughts on the connections I'm making there? 
Yeah, sure. I, you know, I think, you know, if, if we use this neural model, Sean, of, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together, what kind of circuits do you want to build in your brain? And, and, you know, if you're the kind you want to build are the kinds that involve affirmation, self-respect, pleasure, things you like, you, you want to play that record again, you know, you just want to do it. Um, and, um, so positive reinforcement is that I feel good about doing this or my friend said something really nice to me and it makes me feel better. You'd much rather have that, that background music playing than, oh God, this guy yelled at me again. He told me not to do it and I shouldn't do it. And so you tend to avoid it. So do you want to build neural connections, long-term potentiation in, in neuroplasticity for things that tend to make you feel good and, and you you know you want to play that one over and over because you feel good when you do it or oh god this is awful i just you know touched an open circuit and got a shock you know you don't want that so i think it is the case that number one it 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 feels better and number two it works better (laughs) you you know you find a way to elicit something good and that's even in dealing with very serious problems you know i when i deal with people with trauma it's what did you do to protect yourself when this happened? Not that, you know, it happened, it's terrible, but how did you try to protect yourself? Um, I I had a woman in hypnosis who wanted to identify the the face of her assailant and um, because it was getting dark when he attacked her and um, she couldn't give the police a description. You know, she Mm. apparently fought him off. She fought so hard, she got a basilar skull fracture, but he did not rape her so the cops kind of lost interest because a rape hadn't happened and they didn't know she didn't have the seizure yet that before she had to go to the hospital so she's looking at this guy in hypnosis body safe and comfortable and um she said you know he doesn't i can't really see what his features are but i realized something i didn't realize at the time he didn't just want to rape me he wanted to kill me Mm -hmm. and so it was worse than she thought that's bad. That's negative reinforcement, right? On the other side, I said, so what did you do to protect yourself? And so she had a visual screen like our Zoom screen right now where, you know, bad guys over there. What did you do to protect yourself? And she said, you know what? He's surprised I'm fighting that hard. He didn't think I would. So what she realized out of it was, on the one hand, it was a much worse situation than she thought it was. But on the other hand, she probably saved her life. And before that, she was thinking, I, if I just hadn't fought that hard, I wouldn't have had the skull fracture. And she realized that she'd saved her life. So it helped her to find something positive, even in this horrible situation, um, that helped her to get better and, and deal with it. So I think the idea, I, I think it is a profound truth that, that you know, find a positive way an honest positive way to reframe, reconceptualize your experience and you'll be more inclined to stick with that, you know? Mm. And so, you know, rather than I, I've had people trying to stop smoking who say, Oh, I just have an urge and I need to, and I'm an addict. And I, you know, I'll tell them nobody has ever died in nicotine withdrawal, but millions of people die every year from smoking. So take your pick, you know? Um, but instead of worrying about, I say, don't worry about withdrawal. Uh, let me worry. I'm your doctor. I'll worry about that. You know, it's not going to kill you. The smoking will kill you. Um, focus on what you're for. I'm respecting and protecting my body. And just think about how much more easily that circuit will get built and be replayed because you like it 
rather than this miserable, poor me, I can't follow the urge, you know, I'm jittery and all this stuff, and I have to have more nicotine in my body. So it makes sense to me that it is a, a kind of secret clue to how to make our brains work better and work for us better. Um, and that is by um, finding a, a method of positive reinforcement rather than negative. Do we know the percentage of people who are hypnotizable versus those who aren't? Yeah, we do. Um, if if we're talking uh, about eight-year-olds, they're all hypnotizable. You know, <laughs> all eight-year-olds are in trances all the time. You know, you call your kid in for dinner. He doesn't hear you. He's doing work and play are all the same thing. It's a wonderful time of life. It's a shame we try to make kids into little adults because childhood is so much fun. You know, it's just so cool. But as we go through what are called formal operations in adolescence, where we start to understand logical reasoning that the tall, skinny uh, vase is not as big as the short, fat one because it's narrower. Um, some people lose some of that hypnotic ability. So it's, they don't get as lost in the appearance of things and they get more into the analysis of things, which is an important part of maturation. By the time you're 21, your hypnotizability is pretty set for life. And uh, it's as stable a trait as IQ um, throughout adult life, very stable. Uh, there was a study done at Stanford where former Psych 1 students were retested blind to their original scores, 0.6 test retest correlation. Now that's as good as IQ. IQ might be 0.7, but very close, um, which is really remarkable for a trait like this. Um, and, and it's about... Two-thirds of the adult population are at least somewhat hypnotizable, and about 15% are extremely hypnotizable. So there is a third that just aren't, but they can use these same kinds of strategies. It's just a little more effort for them to do it than the more hypnotizable people. Oh, that's encouraging. Yeah. And yeah. on Reverie, we actually have a hypnotizability test people can take in about six minutes and learn how hypnotizable you are. Are you the, the high, the poet, just gets into your experience and flows with it? Are you more the diplomat where you have the experience and then you think about it and wonder what was, was that for real, you know, and you try it again and it's more interactive. And then there's about a third who we call the researchers who just aren't very hypnotizable and mm -hmm. have to think everything through first. But if you think things through the right way, I've had people stop smoking using that same approach and it takes more efforts. But after two or three efforts, we had one woman who just said, I just did it. I realized it did not make sense for me to smoke. Hmm. Now, you know, the highs would say, I couldn't imagine doing something that awful to a dog or to my baby. Why would I do it to my body? They get the more emotional connection to it. Whereas others go with this affirmation approach, but they, they do it in a more rational, logical, step-by-step -step way. And that's fine too. That's interesting. I definitely want to talk about reverie and and how it works, um, and what you know what the the mm. process is. I definitely want to get into that, but I I I uh, wonder if you're up for a little lightning round where I will give you some sort of uh, situation, some affliction, somebody that something to deal with, and then you can tell me either yes, uh, hypnotize um, hypnosis can help it, no, or uh, it depends, you know, you can take the easy way out and say it depends, but I hope you don't. So, um, Go for it, Sean. depression, depression. Uh, yes, but there are, there are times when people are so depressed that, um, they can't concentrate well enough. Uh, they, they feel so down about themselves and they just, their brains don't work so well. And they'll tell you that in which case 
you've got to get them to the point where they can experience hypnosis, and then it can help them deal with many of the issues that would tend to keep someone depressed. So it depends on how depressed they are. I'd say at the the more extreme end, there are techniques ranging from medication to some very promising new results with transcranial magnetic stimulation now. A colleague of mine, Nolan Williams, is uh, is innovating with that at Stanford now, and it's around the country now. People can get it. So there are biological approaches that may be primary if you're pretty depressed. But with garden variety depression and sadness, hypnosis can be helpful in putting things into perspective. So it wasn't a yes, no, or maybe quite, but... It was yes, but that fair enough. Okay. (laughs) Um, Overeating. For sure. For sure. You hypnosis will help you focus on eating with respect for your body on paying attention to your hunger and satiety cues and honoring them. And the answer is clearly yes. Grief. Yes, it can help with grief. Um, It can help you put it in perspective uh, we've used hypnosis in breast cancer support groups. Am I allowed to go on this much longer or just sure, give the answer? Yeah. Yeah. Um, where people at the end of a meeting would grieve the deaths of members of the group. And they would picture in hypnosis, on the one hand, um, the just facing the loss that this person is no longer with us and the obvious issues of identification with the person who died because I have the same illness. And on the other hand, what did she leave with you that you still have today? You know, what what did she teach you? What feelings did she elicit in you that you can still feel? So you make it not all or none, but both and yes, she's gone, but she's I've still got something from her. Hmm. Beautiful. Cancer. Uh, it can certainly help people. It's a very effective analgesic. Uh, women in these groups, for example, when they would get, um, uh, you know, a new chest pain, they think, oh, my God, you know, the cancer spreading, it's new metastasis, I'm going to die tomorrow kind of thing. And once I taught them to imagine they were floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space, feel the sense of warm, tingling numbness, they could control the pain. And it, it didn't prove that it wasn't a metastasis, but it also didn't constantly make associate the sensation in their chest with some rapid progression of the cancer. And mm-hmm. so by the end of a year in this randomized trial, the women who were taught that had half the pain the control group did on the same and very low amounts of medication. So yes, it can help people deal with pain and other kinds of cancer-related stress for sure. Confidence. Yes. Um, I mean, look at me. You know, I'm very... <laughs> it does. Yes, it can enhance confidence because again, it can... <laughs> Um, you can you know you can use it to focus on doing your best on and and building confidence give yourself grounds for building confidence so for example uh, the stanford women's swimming team was doing they're very good you know they've won all kinds of uh meets and awards and you know uh, olympic uh, competitions they but the coach a while ago noticed that the women were swimming faster times in practice than they were in meets now, swimming is not a contact sport, right? You know, it doesn't really matter what the woman in the next lane is doing. You know, it's not like, uh, you know, uh, uh, water polo, you know, where you got to fight the opponent. Um, so what they were doing was distracting themselves from their relationship with their body and swimming their best race by worrying about what the girl in the next lane was doing. So I had them in practice just go into a state of self-hypnosis and picture how you're relating to your body and the water 
uh, when you're swimming your best race. And the times in the in the meets went up because they were focused more on what mattered, which is how they related to their body and the water and the pool, uh, and less on whatever the hell was going on next to, in the next lane. So yes, you can enhance your confidence not in a phony artificial way, but by doing things that give you confidence mm. and focusing on how you what matters in your performance which is how in this case how you relate to your body and how your body relates to the fluid around it uh, that's what really matters not what the girl next door is doing i'm seeing i'm 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 seeing themes here that uh that are that are really cool um sleep the answer is a firm yes firm yes absolutely uh Sleep is, uh, you know, basically a relinquishing of sympathetic activation. You know, it's like slowing your heart rate, lowering your blood pressure. Um, you know, it's it's why a loud noise or your damn alarm clock will, you know, wake you up. It's because suddenly there's this event that triggers your arousal network, the salience network, and gets you going. Sleep is the predominance of the parasympathetic self-soothing uh, component of the autonomic nervous system. And as you allow yourself to self-soothe, you allow yourself to sleep. So you can learn to dissociate any thoughts you have that might disturb you from your physiological reaction to them and get your body prepared to go to sleep. And so the answer is clearly yes. Psychosis. Uh, this again is a, well, it's sort of a no, but um, in general, people who are psychotic have trouble concentrating well enough and in a consistent enough way to experience hypnosis. And so we found that the hypnotizability of people who have schizophrenia, for example, is about half that of normal people. So their score is like three and three to four out of 10 normal people at seven to eight on average. Um, so they just can't concentrate well enough. And, and the distinction between self-hypnosis and some paranoid delusion that somebody is you know is a martian who's creeping his way into your head and taking over you would not go very well so many psychotic people unfortunately can't however there are some people who have what we used to call hysterical psychosis where they have a psychotic experience that really is a kind of uh dissociative episode out of control so we had i was presented with a patient in an inpatient unit who um, had a delusion that he was a werewolf and he would start growling and he wouldn't talk in words and and he was possessed he said and he saw a, a pastor his pastor of a fundamentalist church who said you're possessed by the demons of satan and he believed it and um so i he turned out to be very hypnotizable and hypnotizability testing is a very useful way to distinguish between the two and um it turned out that um, what he was possessed by was his sister's sexuality. They shared a bedroom and she would sometimes sneak her boyfriend into the bedroom. So he's lying there trying to deal with that as a teenager. And um, the family didn't know about it. So I, I said to the mother afterwards, get your son his own bedroom. And I didn't particularly say why. And I said, and don't freak out when he acts like this. So the next time he said he was a werewolf, she said, I don't care who you are eat your dinner so he put his face in the bowl of soup and started lapping it up but the family didn't freak out about it and he didn't uh and he and he the stimulus had been changed so sure. uh and so he 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 got better 
So huh. there are rare kinds of psychosis like that that can be helped with hypnosis, but the majority, no, they're just not able to be hypnotized. Obsessive compulsive disorder. That's a tough one. I would say um, it's a sort of no, but again, um, by and large, people who are very obsessional tend not to be very hypnotizable. The, you know, the people with the hand washing and the germ phobias and all this stuff in general are so preoccupied that they can't let go enough to try on being different. It's too dangerous for them. However, there's a minority of people with OCD who had a traumatic origin to their symptoms where something bad happened and they responded by becoming overly cautious about everything. So there are some for whom you can, you know, get them to deal with some aspect of the traumatic origin of the trauma and see themselves as not being as vulnerable and helpless as they think they are. And they may get some improvement, but in general, less likely. Aging. (laughs) I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. it, It can help you with the stresses and strains, the aches and pains, you know, you can just manage you know, uh, if you think you get in a kind of vicious cycle, an example is is rheumatoid arthritis, for example, which uh, older people get, their joints get kind of stiff and sore, they get some inflammation. And there's a kind of vicious cycle that gets set up because the more your joints hurt, the less likely you are to move them. But that actually gets them on the path of freezing where they just, mm. so, you know, many People with arthritis find that their worst time is first thing in the morning because they've been lying in bed, not moving very much. And and they feel better, actually, if they once they get walking and moving. So if you can teach them to manage the pain by recognizing that it's it's actually you're not hurting the joint by moving it. You know, normally we take the pain as a signal. Don't do that. You just broke your arm. Don't do it. In this case, you're misreading the pain signal because it, it, if it slows you down from from moving, your joint's going to get worse, not better. So mm. moving is a good thing. So I have them imagine you're in a warm bath, warm, tingling numbness, filter the hurt out of the pain, and enjoy that sense of movement the way your, your, your leg used to feel and feel like that again. So for problems like that, it can help. Um, people who start to lose cognitive abilities, that can be more of a problem. Um, and, they, you know, you have to have an intact, reasonably intact memory to remember what to do and remember to do it. So that can be, if if the brain itself is becoming, you know, especially affected, it's less likely. But there are a lot of things uh, in, in aging that um, you can keep your body moving, keep yourself going, and hypnosis can help you do it more comfortably. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm seeing I'm seeing this theme, right? I think it's it, it sounds like it's dependent person to person, which makes sense. And also, if if you go upstream from the ailment, if you can go upstream to the source of the trauma or the you know the debilitation you experience from this thing or that thing, maybe you can kind of break up that sort of crystallized, sort of fixed mindset, so that people can like change their perspective about this thing that's 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 getting in the way of their wellness. And I think that that makes it so, I mean, obviously it makes it really powerful because you never know until you get in there and dig in and try new things and get suggestions that are alternative and productive in your life. And that may lead to, you know, more flexibility physically, mentally, less obsession, you know, um, treating your body as, 
um, you know, as, as the baby or the dog that you want to treat with, with care and love and nourishment. Fantastic. Yeah, you're absolutely right that it's, you know, you get into what uh, my colleague at psychology, Ali Crum calls mindsets, you know, where you make assumptions that bad things are happening. And once you do, right. you start doing things that reinforce the assumptions. You know, I can't use it. I'm damaging it if I use it. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes it isn't. So you, you want to get in the mindset that this is a signal to me that I've got to pay more attention to this part of my body, but help it heal, help it do better. And uh, she does research, or we've just uh, finished a study with cancer patients who freak out understandably about the side effects of chemotherapy. And we say to them, think about the fact that what you're experiencing is a powerful drug having an effect on your body. And if it hurts, it may also be hurting cancer cells even more. So it can be a sign of an effective treatment not a sign that your body is disintegrating. Mm. So that kind of, you don't let your expectation put you on this sort of circular path where you wind up where you don't want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we all have narratives, right? We, we all have these, these self-limiting beliefs or automatic negative thoughts that get in the way of us making good choices and productive choices. And right. many of us just don't, we're just not aware of it. We've never inspected that before, you know, and, and right. my, my work as a coach is to sort of break up some of those assumptions. You know, do you mm. feel like you're unworthy? Do you feel like you don't right. have the skill or you can't get this skill or develop this habit? Right. right. And once, once you sort of break down that, that groove that they've been in for sometimes decades, right through affirmation or psychedelic experiences, which are uh, you know, a big part mm. of what I do. If you can shift out of that, if you can sort of get out of this, this groove in the road and then everything changes, like the, the, the sort of operations, the default mode network, you know, shifts a little bit. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and that's what in hypnosis, the more you're engaged in something in hypnosis, our MRI studies have shown the more you inhibit activity in the default mode network. Yeah. So you, you sort of shut down that part of your brain. that's evaluating what this all means about who you are and what you can do. And you just kind of suspend that for a while and try operating as though that weren't an issue anymore. You don't have to worry right now yeah. about where you're heading. Just get into the experience of doing it and you'll do it better. Yeah. Uh, um, my first first foray into entrepreneurship was to start a a, a, ch a chain of flotation therapy centers, and uh, float mm -hmm. tanks are super effective at mm -hmm. quieting the default mode network, experiencing yourself in a new way. Um, you know, the sort of like the the tank sort of meditates you because there's no external stimuli and gravity and all that thing. And, and so, you know, I'd be curious about the connections or or the in fact. Dr. Roderick Bory from New York, who was uh, a therapist, uh, he would he would use hypnosis while people were floating in the float tank. Mm, mm. Uh, this was in the I think the 80s or the 90s that he was doing this work, and he saw incredible effects because you're you're even more suggestive. There the the stimuli is reduced so much that you right. are open to, you know, new ideas about yourself. So, absolutely. Um, uh, before, before I ask the, the, the final question, uh, which is a fill in the blank question and, and, you know, I, sh I should have budgeted for four hours and taken up half of your day on this. Cause I, <laughs> I, I, I want to go deeper, but, right. um, um, 
explain to us how Reverie works. What what can people experience when they download sure. the app? Reverie is uh, just a di- digital interactive hypnosis app. Uh, you download it from uh, the App Store if you have an iOS phone or Google Play if you have an Android. And it offers you a series of um, problems you can address using hypnosis. You can test your hypnotizability in about six minutes. It'll tell you after you perform some experiences about your hand feeling light and floating in the air and see how you react to it. So you can decide what degree of hypnotizability you have and how to approach the exercises. And then if you want to deal with stress, we you hear my mellifluous voice instructing you how to get your body comfortable and floating, just like you mentioned with the float tanks, only without the, the actual tank. And and get your body floating as if you were in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. Picture being in a place you enjoy being. So you can already feel that your body feels better and you start to feel better. And you can handle the stress better because stress stresses us because we start to notice our body tensing up, heart rate, blood pressure going up, you start to sweat. And then you think, oh my God, this must be really bad. So you get this vicious cycle like a snowball rolling downhill. You interrupt that by saying, I, I'm not yet going to try and deal with the stressor. I'm going to try and deal with the effect the stressor has on my body. I can do that. So you can get your body more comfortable and then problem solve about how to deal. What's one thing you could do that would address the stressor, make it go better, help people go to sleep, dissociate their physiological arousal from their psychological arousal, help people deal with fears and phobias. If you have a Airplane phobia, I instruct you how to float with the plane, to think of the plane as an extension of your body like a bicycle, um, to recognize there's a difference between a probability and a possibility. Anything's possible, but it's not likely. So you can find yourself thinking about flying in an airplane differently. We've talked about smoking, protect and respect your body. So there, you can make a choice of a number of problems you can address and see how you feel. And the cool thing about it is you'll know within 15 minutes whether it's likely to help you or not. Hmm. And uh, about 85% of people who use it find that after one session, they feel less stressed. Their pain is significantly reduced. And, and you know, Sean, when you think of the fact that the CDC told us that last year, 82,000 Americans died of opioid overdoses. Opioids are dangerous, especially for chronic use. People get addicted. They get withdrawal, hyperalgesia. They have more pain. Nobody has ever died from hypnosis. And I have patients who have real pain problems who can just handle it better. They don't fight the pain. They imagine, they filter their hurt out of the pain. They feel themselves uh, floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or they leave their body. And I'm just going to go to Bali and enjoy being there and let my body do what it's doing here. Or they also develop a sense of compassion for their body rather than getting angry at it. And many people who are sick get angry at their body. I say, if your body were a sick child, what would you do? Would you get angry at her? No. They say, I'd give her a hug and I'd comfort her and soothe her. And I say, good, do that to your own body. Mm. So you can try out any or all of these and, and more different, um, problem-focused hypnosis sessions and see how you feel. And so you can turn it on and it's interactive. I wanted to make it as much as I could like the experience of being in the office with me. So I'll say, is your arm floating in the air? If it is, you tell me and you get one instruction. We go on to something else. If not, I help you with that part of it too. So I ask a question, you give answers throughout and that structures your hypnotic experience. So it's more like 
um, being in the office with me. And I used to worry that it's, you know, is it good enough? And then I thought, you know what, if you're waking up in the middle of the night and want hypnosis to go back to sleep, you probably don't want me in your bedroom with you telling you how to do it, but you've got me, you've got me on your smartphone. And so you can use it when and where you want to use it. So that's it. And it's, uh, you can enjoy trying it out. And the nice thing is you will know right away whether it's likely to help you or not. Hmm. And with your silky pipes, man, you you got a voice. When did you realize that you were made to soothe people with your voice? I don't know. I um, uh, my my wife and a good friend of ours were had a, a little folk music band that we used to play around Harvard Square called Free Energy, and I guess I I honed my voice singing blues and stuff like that. But um, silky, so I'm silky. Glad. Thank you. I'm <laughs> glad to hear that from you. That's a real compliment, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so this is, this is the last, obviously, uh, you can find Reverie, um, on the right. app store or Google play. So I, I encourage, you know, if you're interested in this stuff at all, I always encourage people to, to, to look to solutions that are not chemicals first, eat less, right. meditate, exercise, get right. in the cold plunge, you know, get sun on your face, try hypnosis because it, it, it could be the thing. It could be that solution that's not going to harm your body and and just open up, open up yourself to higher performance, to optimal performance. Uh, so this is the last question. It's a, a fill in the blank, specifically designed to keep people on their toes. And I've asked this hundreds of times. Um, you can elaborate as much or as little as you like. Everyone would benefit from knowing. Um how to better use their brain. You know, it's, it's an amazing structure. It's our major evolutionary advantage, three pounds sitting on the top of our shoulders. Um, but it does not come with a user's manual. And so there's a lot we can learn about how to use it better, just as we can our bodies. So hypnosis uh, is, is one of those tools that you can learn to use and exploit and explore your brain's capacities to help you live better and uh, be more comfortable within your body and your mind. So take full advantage of it. Well said. Dr. Spiegel, thank you so much for joining me today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. You're welcome, Sean. It was a pleasure performing with you.